But when you hear the phrase, church discipline, what comes to mind? Now by church discipline, I mean the correction of a church member engaged in blatant, unrepentant sin. The aim of church discipline is restoration, but if there is not repentance, the person can be removed as a church member. So when you hear that phrase, church discipline, what comes to mind? Well, I would imagine there's a variety of reactions. For some Christians, it sounds unfamiliar. I say that because church discipline is not something that church, some churches discuss, either intentionally, because they just don't want to have to deal with that, or unintentionally. And fewer churches actually implement it. Last year, LifeWay Research did a survey of 1,000 Protestant pastors, and 82% said that they have not disciplined a member in the last year, and 55% said they do not know of a case when someone was disciplined in their church, either during their tenure or ever in the church's history. For other Christians, church discipline sounds harsh, our culture, I think we would all agree, strongly promotes the values of kind of an unfettered individualism, right? And uh, it's, uh, uh, relativism, a moral relativism. And those values, they clash, don't they, with any kind of notion of accountability or correction. And when people do look to the Bible in our culture, Probably the most popular Bible verse of all is Matthew 7, 1, where Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. That's got to become our national Bible verse. By the way, in this passage, Jesus goes on to endorse the notion of correction, but what he does condemn is being hypocritical when you correct others. So regardless Church discipline is seen as harsh. So whether it's seen as unfamiliar, whether it's seen as harsh, it's just something that for a lot of us is kind of foreign or maybe seen in a negative light. Therefore, it comes as a surprise to actually learn that church discipline is discussed quite a bit in the New Testament. It starts with Jesus, and then there's about half a dozen or so occasions where it appears in the letters of Paul. So it is something that shows up in the life of the church. And also it's church discipline if it is done properly, and many times it is not done properly. But if it is done properly, it is something that is actually essential for the life and vitality and purity of a local church. So while in America it is kind of uncommon in modern church life, it's not always been this way. It was very widely practiced, strictly implemented it's up until about the 4th century in the, the church. It waned during the Middle Ages, but then was revived during the Protestant Reformation with a greater emphasis on saying what the Scripture teach about church life. And in fact, the Protestant Reformers, as they thought about what are the essential marks of a local, genuine New Testament church? 
they commonly identified three things that were essential marks of a local church. Preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments, and exercising church discipline. Those were three key marks of a true church. And so church discipline was etched into famous confessions of faith, like the Belgian Confession of 1561, the Westminster Confession in 1646. So church discipline has been very important in the life of church history, and it remains so today because of what it says in Scripture. So that's uh, I think it's vital to understand what the New Testament actually teaches. And today is one of those half dozen or so places that Paul talks about church discipline. So let me invite you to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 as we come to our final message through our series on Thessalonians. I hope you guys have enjoyed our study. Uh, we've covered a lot of important and different topics, and I hope it's blessed and grown us as followers of Christ. And today, as I said here, in this final major section of the letter, Paul addresses a pressing issue in the church. As I talked about last week, there was a group of professing Christians who were idle. And by idle, I mean they were not just lazy, but they were also kind of unsubordinate and disruptive, right? And they were also taking unjustly the resources of other Christians that could have been used for genuine need. And so Paul um, gives them this warning. He gives them this warning to avoid them. Because he has already done so. He says in verse 6 of chapter 3, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, and not accord with the tradition that you received from us. As I said, this is not a new issue. Paul dealt with this issue when he started the church. Okay, And then it kept on going. So he wrote about it in the first letter several times, bringing it up still was going on, now brings it up once again, okay? Then, in verses 7 to 10, just recapping from last week, Paul gave two reasons why idleness is wrong. He talked about his example of hard work, and then he also spoke about his teaching about hard work. And as I said last week, it's not just Paul that zooms in on this, but all of Scripture speaks about the importance of, and the value of hard work, right? You guys remember that from last week? Mm -hmm. All right. So now, now we're kind of caught up to speed. In verse 11 and following, Paul applies two points as he returns to this issue of church discipline that he brought up in verse 6. And that's going to be our focus here this morning. So in verses 11 and 12, Paul's first point is that the idol must work, right? He directly addresses them. He says in verses 11 and following, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now that word walk means it's a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor for your lifestyle. It's your way of conducting yourself. And so for this group of people, their lifestyle was idleness. They weren't lazy just for a few days. You know, you guys have all had, maybe, or a lot of you have had a four-day weekend. Kind of kicking back. Anybody been kind of lazy these past few days? Nobody's willing to admit it now we're talking about this message here, right? 
it's, it's okay, right, to kick back and relax a little bit. That's okay. We're supposed to rest and relax. But their lifestyle was characterized by idleness, these folks. And they were taking unjustly the resources of others. And with their free time, with their free time, they were busybodies. They were busy meddling and not busy working. And that can be a real problem, right? When you have too much free time, it can lead to being a busybody, getting involved in other people's business. Ever heard that phrase, idle hands are the devil's workshop? That is a real thing, right? And so these idlers were getting busy in other people's lives and causing a disturbance in the church community. So after noting their, their idleness, Paul commands them to work. He uses a very strong word there in the Greek. And he's urging them to work quietly and to earn their own living. So in essence, he's saying, I want you to be the opposite of a busybody, right? You're supposed to not be a busybody. You're to work quietly. Now that's not talking about your personality, whether you talk a lot or not. It's just saying that you are to not be causing the disturbance. It's just going about your own business and providing for yourself. So they're also to be opposites of freeloaders and that they're to earn their own living and not take the resources of others. I think that message still applies to the church today, right? It is vital for people who are able to work and to provide for themselves and not use the church resources that do go to genuine needs. Amen? So that's the first part of our passage, the idol must work. Now we're getting into the real heart of the passage here, which is the second part is the church must practice discipline. The church must practice discipline. So he says in verses 13 to 15, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So in verse 13, Paul begins by urging them to keep doing good. It's interesting he says that, because there can be a temptation, can't there, that maybe you've been taken advantage of by a freeloader, mm -hmm. to just say, I'm done with that, right? But Paul doesn't say that. He says, keep doing good. Keep working hard. Keep helping those in need, right? This is important to preserve the testimony of the church to a watching world. And well, and as well, it reminds these idle Christians of how we're supposed to live. Working hard so that we can give to others rather than not working hard and freeloading from others, right? Paul says if the idlers continue to ignore his commands, the church is to have nothing to do with them. Now we come to this topic of church discipline. Now to start, we need to recognize that the teachings of Jesus here, excuse me, the teachings of Paul, they actually echo the teachings of Jesus. That's right, the, 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 the discussion, the topic, the teaching of church discipline begins with Jesus himself. This is really important to have etched in our hearts and minds, right? So I want you to see this yourself. Go to Matthew chapter 18. Or we're going to see Jesus' words about this topic. Matthew chapter 18. As you guys are turning there, just a little context is helpful to really get the full effect from this passage. Just prior to our passage in Matthew 18, 
Jesus gives this famous illustration about a sheep, one sheep that has wandered away from the fold, and a shepherd realizes it, and he goes and he rescues that sheep. Ever heard of that passage before? Very famous passage. Okay. Now, it's important to realize a couple things about that passage. The context of that passage is not about salvation, but it's actually about a Christian that is strayed. Moreover, the shepherd in this passage, we know the Lord is the good shepherd, but in Jesus' teaching, the shepherd is not the Lord, but it's actually another Christian who sees another Christian who was strayed, and he goes and brings him back. So now that when Jesus starts talking about church discipline, it is actually the very means of bringing back a strayed sheep. That kind of shed a little light on it? So in verse 15 to 17, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus' instructions are quite clear. If a person is engaged in sin, another Christian should go and speak to them. I think it is important to clarify that when Jesus says sin there, I think he's talking about blatant, unrepentant sin, right? This isn't, oh, I just kind of lost my cool for a second. I'm sorry about that. So some guy has to come up to me and start correcting me. That's not what that is about. This is blatant, unrepentant sin, okay? And so if the person still doesn't repent, then Jesus says the Christian should bring another person or two with them. You say, why does that happen? Well, the purpose is for sort of the emphasis on repentance to be stressed while, you know, there's another person or two there and to establish the truthfulness of it. In the Old Testament, you see that quite a bit. If you wanted to establish something, you had two or three witnesses to establish the charge, right? It wasn't just one person's word versus another, but it was established on firm grounds. So if that takes place, if a person or two has been brought along and they bring this up to the, to the Christian, they still don't repent, Jesus says, then... The matter should be brought before the entire church. If the person still does not repent, then the church should regard the person as a Gentile or tax collector. In other words, Jesus is saying we should regard them as a non-Christian who is no longer a part or a member of this church. Now please note, friends, that church discipline is for the entire church. Not just the leaders. While the leaders often do take a, a, a role in this process, it's not required. Jesus envisioned the whole church's involvement and the whole church's responsibility. Each Christian might need to participate in one of those initial conversations. And at the very least, every Christian has a voice when it comes to that final stage of church discipline. Now, from Jesus' teaching, I want to kind of draw three, three principles about church discipline. First, it is confidential. 
Church discipline is carried out discreetly. There should be no gossip involved here. There's nothing posted on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. This is a confidential matter. It's not public knowledge. One person takes, goes to the person, and if there's no other, there's no response there, then they bring one or two other people. The bare minimum are involved. Okay? So it is confidential. Second, it is deliberate. Scripture doesn't give any timetables. It might take a matter of days. It might take a matter of weeks. Regardless, it's deliberate. But the point is that there's no quick decision that must be made, right? There's a process to allow time for people to think about these things if they need to repent. There's time to allow, maybe there's a false accusation taking place. Well, maybe there's time to let that fall to the side as facts come to light, right? So the whole process is deliberate. And then third, it is redemptive. That probably is the most important point. The goal is that the person would be ashamed of their sin and repent. The goal is for relationships to be restored that were harmed. And yes, the church has a solemn duty to forgive and to welcome back anyone who has repented. Jesus will go on after this passage to talk about how we should always forgive other believers who confess. That's where he comes up with the famous forgive them 77 times. Basically, unlimited forgiveness. He goes on to tell the parable of the king who forgives this guy who owed an unpayable debt. And then the guy goes out and gets mad at his, his friend who owed him like a little bit of money. And Jesus says, that's insane, right? Why are you doing that? It's the same with us. God has forgiven us so much. And so if someone has sinned, we forgive them, don't we? Friends, discipline is redemptive and should always be motivated by blood, by love. Just as a parent disciplines out of love, so too the church disciplines out of love. Always wanting God's best for the person. So with that foundation in place, let's go back to 2 Thessalonians, okay? Now that we have Jesus' teaching in place. So Paul commands the church to avoid these idlers if they continue to reject his teaching. Now it's a little bit unclear if Paul is saying on one hand, he has already warned them through his in-person contacts or whether through the letters he's written, whether they should already kind of have the church discipline take place, right? Sort of the end of the line, so to speak. Or if Paul is saying, I want you now to begin the process of church discipline. I kind of lean toward the latter because Paul says that we are to warn them as a brother, right? We are still speaking to that person as a brother, hoping that they will repent from their situation. But regardless of which option you choose, if these, if what Paul is saying here, if these idlers, these Christian idlers, do not respond, they're to be regarded as non-Christians and avoided. Now, an important question arises as to the nature of that avoidance. What does that entail, right? Isn't that a great question? What does that mean when Paul says to avoid them? Does that mean no contact at all or no contact as a fellow Christian? Does it mean complete avoidance or does it mean Christian avoidance? You see the difference? I think he means Christian avoidance. Why do I say that? Well, Christians are to love everybody, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Jesus says we're supposed to love our enemies. 
I, so I take that to mean that we're supposed to continue to love people who are on the receiving end of church discipline. You should continue to treat that person with respect as you would any non-Christian. Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, speaking of non-Christians, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. So church discipline does not mean that you're rude and offensive to someone who is on the receiving end. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I don't think it means a complete avoidance. You're still supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. But I do think it means a Christian avoidance. If the church has decided that this person who is not repenting of their sin is no longer to be regarded as a Christian, right? We shouldn't continue to act like everything is fine in their lives. You should not have casual conversations about God and pray with them as if nothing has changed. Rather, your conversations should have a focus on repentance. Friends, something must be different or else the person will never sense that anything is wrong, never feel a sense of, of guilt about the things that they're doing, and never want to turn. So I think kind of to boil it down, yes, you still maintain contact, but no longer as a fellow Christian. How that all plays out in a thousand different details, I think the Holy Spirit has to lead and guide Christians. But I think those are some general principles. Now some, maybe you guys are thinking this now, are going to say, that sounds too harsh. And that's going to turn people off. And certainly church discipline is difficult. And yes, sometimes people do not repent in these situations. However, sometimes the person does repent. And it is glorious. I read such a testimony this past week. This man who begins his article this way, said, quote, many years ago I was excommunicated from my church and I'm thankful to God for it. <laughs> you probably wouldn't expect to hear that reaction, but if the church had not honored God's word, I'm afraid to even wonder what the, wonder what the state of my life and more importantly my soul might be in today. My removal from church membership led to God's restorative work in my life. So now... I'm a cheerleader for church discipline. He goes on to talk about his story and how he came to this place. But at the end of the article, he closes by saying, Church discipline served to expose my hypocrisy. It forced me to deal with the claims of Christ. God used membership and exclusion to show me that life in the world without God is miserable. And my only hope is Christ. So church discipline done biblically and properly prayerfully, humbly, all of those things can restore someone. And church discipline also purifies the church. Please hear me when I say this. If sin is tolerated in the church, it can have a corrosive effect on the entire church. In a passage about church discipline in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6, Paul says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So leaven spreads throughout dough, doesn't it? He says the same thing is the case about sin. Mark it down. If a church decides to turn the other way, close a blind eye, 
to sin, whether the conduct of people or whether allowing false doctrine into the church, if the church allows that, mark it down, the church will weaken. God's presence will not reside as strong in the church. And then other people will be encouraged. Hey, so-and-so is doing that over there. Nobody even cares in this church. What's the big deal if I do it? You see that mindset? Because that mindset can get in anybody's head. All of us. And what is the great, probably the greatest objection that you hear in the world about the church? The church is full of a bunch of what? Right? You hear that all the time. Church discipline is actually trying to do something about that. Not that anybody is perfect, but that we're taking this seriously. And friends, when the church is pure and righteous, I believe it can attract people from the world who want to know what is it about this group that is different. They do seem to have a walk with God that I don't have. And I think the world can be attracted. You know what's interesting? In some of the reading I was doing this past week, how history bears that out. Nowadays in America, a lot of church denominations are not keeping up with the rate of the population growth. Does that make sense? Yeah. Population's growing like this. The church denominations are not keeping up with the, the, the national population growth. Well, there was this gentleman who, who talked about his study of Baptists between the years of 1790 and 1860, where they practiced church discipline very diligently. You know what he discovered? That the denomination grew twice as fast as the national population. Amen. Twice as fast. Now, I'm not saying that the way to grow a church is to start practicing church discipline left and right. There are more important factors like prayer, evangelism, and serving, and teaching, and so forth. But I think it's a real foolish mistake to say, oh, if you start practicing church discipline, the church is going to go into a nosedive. I think it will actually attract people if it's done good enough. So the rock bottom is, whether people... The church grows or not, this is what Jesus teaches us to do. This is what Paul teaches us to do. Because our hearts are for people. We love people. We want them to be brought out of situations where they are entangled in sin. And we want them to experience redemption. And not just to leave them on their own, but to come alongside them as a brother or sister in Christ. And to say, we love you. There's a better way. Follow God's way. And you will walk in the light. Amen? So that's the heart of the passage. Let me just close here by going back to verses 16 through 18 as Paul closes the entire letter with a benediction. He says in verses 16 and following, here is his closing prayer in verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Now, if you remember back at the end of 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul also closed his letter with a benediction to the God of peace. Paul focuses a lot on the God of peace. This was important to him. 
You know, because they were going through a lot here in this church. They were going through persecution. There was a lot of unrest about speculations about the end of time that they were getting wrong. And now they're hearing about church discipline. So Paul prays that God would give them peace. The only kind of peace that truly matters, the peace that God provides. So that's his prayer. And then in verse 17, he writes a greeting. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Scholars tell us that Paul probably used scribes in the writing of his letters, and you know, just to try to, you know, he would tell them what to say and so forth, and then he would sign it personally. And there were fake letters in the church that sometimes would say, oh, this is from so-and-so, whatever. Paul made sure to write his name down at the letter to make sure this was no forgery. This was a real letter from Paul. It carried that stamp of authenticity and authority. This is Paul. We better listen up, right? And then finally, in verse 18, Paul says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I love that. In all of Paul's letters, he begins with, in his introduction, he prays for God's grace in their life. And in all of the closings of Paul's letters, he prays for them to experience God's grace. What's God's grace? His unmerited favor toward us. As we sit here today, let's be reminded that it is all God's grace, isn't it? Amen. God's amazing grace. Amen. Not human effort. Our salvation is not based on human effort. It is based on grace. God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do you know that grace are you trying to earn it? It's grace, man. Jesus paid it all. We just simply receive it by believing in who he is. Receiving God's grace. And then God's grace doesn't stop at the moment of trusting Christ and becoming a Christian. It continues throughout our lives, amen? Every good thing we have is God's grace. Every growth we experience, it's always God's grace. It's foundational for the Christian life. So let us constantly be praying for God's empowering grace in our own lives and in those around us who we want to see grow in Christian living. Amen, church? Amen. 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 Well, I hope you have been blessed as we have gone through the Thessalonians. I'm uh, going to do a little short series on prayer these upcoming few weeks, focusing on how we can be growing as people of prayer. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace to be able to look through this passage. Tough passage, Lord. Tough passage. But that's why we don't skip over things. Because the Bible says that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for rebuke and correction. Lord, and we need that. We need to know your word. All of it. God, we pray that we would be a church that honors you. We would listen to your word. Lord, we pray for unity in our church. We pray for purity in our church. We all sin and fall short of your glory. Help us to want to be the people of God that shows to this world that we are broken people, radically broken people, but we have a radically great Savior who puts us back together 
has given us hope of eternal life. Help us to heed these words we have learned here this morning about church discipline. Lord, help us not, when we encounter situations, to do it our own way, but to think and reflect upon what your word teaches. Lord, we do pray for your salvation, your amazing grace. May you teach us someone here today who doesn't know you, that they will trust that grace for the first time. And Lord, we as your people, that we never outgrow that grace, we will continue to rely upon it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. All God's people say, Amen. 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 Amen.